Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to our final section for today. Today's message title is The Power of the Cross. We're looking at the very last section of Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. So today we come to the end of Galatians, Galatians 6, 11 through 18. Paul concludes his letter pretty much where he began it. He comes full circle back to the main point, to the main arguments. And in most of Paul's letters, though, he ends it with, with greetings. He expresses joy, often containing a doxology of sorts. And interestingly enough, these subscriptions are not here in Galatians. And I think there's a reason for that, though. Rather, the ending is made up of exhortations and also a sober warning, similar to Hebrews, shows his weighty concern for them in a very slight benediction. So there's a small benediction. And this concern resonates fully with where we begin in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. So here today, Paul closes with warnings in order to give Galatian believers more guidance on how to apply all that he's taught them in this letter. In other words, he's helping them to know what to do with the knowledge of faith alone by grace alone and Christ alone. What's it supposed to do for us? What are we supposed to do with that information? And so we've spent a great deal of time unpacking many weeks these simple truths of the gospel. And so today, we're all asking, so now what? And we're going to see that. Now what? What are we to do with the cross of Christ? In other words, what is the cross of Christ really supposed to do for us? We could also pose this overarching question. Who are we to be as a people of faith? What does it make us into? So Paul warns the believer here to maintain their faith in Christ, to regulate their walk according to the Spirit, as we've mentioned for many weeks, and not the flesh. And therein lies the battle for all of us. So too, there is the warning for myself. There's a warning for all of us here at Pine Grove. No one is exempt from these warnings today to walk in truth, to walk in faith. And so let's read our passage together, Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to the end. This is the word of the Lord. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its weight upon our life. We thank you for the authority of the text. I pray that all of us today would set aside pride, thinking we know everything, 
that we would set aside our works, our righteousness, which is as filthy rags. And may we understand that we come before you today in worship as your people by Jesus' righteousness alone to hear once again the truth of God's word. May it cause us to rejoice. May it cause us to give careful attention to the course and the trajectory of our life. May it call us again to see the freedom that we have at the feet of Christ who is Lord over us and our Savior. And so we give you this thanks today. We ask that the Holy Spirit would guide this time, open hearts, and uh, give me freedom to preach only what you would have me to say today. In Jesus' name, amen. So right away in verse 11, we have an interesting verse. Uh, We could spend unnecessary time pontificating about the fact that Paul wrote with his own hand in big letters and what all that entailed and why, for whatever reason. He took the stylus from his amanuensis, who was the one writing the letter that he, that he dictated to, and he finished this out himself. What we can gather, though, is, is really Paul's conveying the boldness of his authority as an apostle and the truth that he's giving. These large letters, his own hand, is, is him adding a force uh, to these warnings that he's going to finish out with. It's really what I think he's doing here. But that's just my opinion. It might not be, it might just be, yeah, I'm writing with my own hand, just so you know. Don't be confused, in other words. Um, but not much more really needs to be said there on verse 11. But right away then in verses 12 and 13, then we move on to see here that we see Paul gives one more punch to who? To the false teachers, to those causing disruption. We think, okay, Paul's already hit pretty hard several times when he says you need to go emasculate yourself. You need to, that was pretty harsh, wasn't it? How many of you have said that to someone? Go emasculate yourself. Okay, that was pretty hard, but he doesn't stop there. He continues his punch here. Here we see again that Paul reiterates his reason for writing this letter. And he again hits on the Judaizers who were disrupting. And the Judaizers were pressing hard on the Galatians, remember, to be circumcised in order to be justified. Wasn't wrong to be circumcised, but the reason for it was wrong. Adding anything to justification is damnation. That's what we gather from this letter. And so he wants them to keep this central in front as he's closing this out, not to forget it. And so how many of you on on Sundays... We do this, we'll we'll go to dinner, we'll go to Arby's on game day, or we'll go out to eat, and then we talk to the kids a little bit about the sermon and what we learn from it, and how many of you are are like them or like us, and be like, oh, what was it again? Oh, yeah. And you were just there, right? We quickly forget. Well, do you think they had the same problem, maybe? So he wants to end this letter with, leave with this on your mind, okay? That's what he's doing here. And so he's reiterating again, keep this in mind that the Judaizers claim to have a seemingly good intention in wanting the Galatian people to be incorporated into the people of God. They, they, they were probably convincing themselves that they were trying to claim that their motives were good, but good motives are not. Anyways, it was still wrong. You cannot add works to justification. It's an anti-gospel, anti-Christ teaching. They were claiming that to be a child of Abraham, they had to take themselves circumcision. And so Paul knows and goes on to prove again 
that they were actually very nefarious in their motives. They were sinister in their reasoning. So Paul writes here about the Judaizers wanting to, quote, make good impressions outwardly. They were trying to make a good impression outwardly. These false teachers, they were selfish. They were self-focused. They wanted to appear as something that they were not. They were hypocrites. They were false. So he issues this final shot at them again. And he writes that they what? What do they do? They boast. And so again, what we're going to learn today is it's not wrong to boast. The question is, what are you boasting in? Do you boast in what, what I did, what I said? I walked the aisle. I prayed a prayer. I popishly pronounced myself saved because of what I did. Or is it, I boast in the cross. I boast in Christ did. Christ died. Christ rose again. Christ ascended. Christ intercedes. Christ is sovereign. Is that your message? What do you boast in? That is the crux of the gospel. What do you boast in? So he writes that they boast about the flesh. They boast in the flesh, and then they also avoid persecution. He writes that. They're weak. They're cowardly. Do you know the Bible actually says the cowardly will not inherit the kingdom of God, too? So we're not to be weak. We're to be fearless as Christians. But they're weak, and they're cowardly. Their motives were to avoid pain brought on by the cross of Jesus Christ. So what does that indicate about their heart? It's not bound by the cross. So I ask you today, is your heart bound by the cross of Jesus Christ? Does the cross of Jesus Christ shape your life? Does it form you? Does it call you in the way that you live? Unto Jesus and not unto yourself. Have you died to yourself? So not only does Paul open a window into really seeing the truth regarding the nature of these Judaizers' hearts. And I'll tell you what, the gospel does that. It shows your heart and what it needs. So he puts a magnifying glass on the Judaizers' heart here. And he draws truth to these Galatian believers to see what's really there. And we also see how these Judaizers were not only who they were themselves, but we also see here that Paul brings out the opinion that the Judaizers had regarding the Galatian believer and how they viewed other people, how these false teachers viewed others. So from Paul's perspective then, the Jew into true freedom into the Galatians' acceptance into the people of God without ever ushering them into true freedom into Christ. Can you be a part of the true people of God but never a part of Christ? You can't. You can't decapitate the church's head. It's Jesus. Jesus is inextricably linked to the body. But they wanted these Galatian people to be a part of their dead body and not a part of Christ, the head. They didn't truly, in other words, care about their souls. So goes a warning for us. Do you give yourself to people who truly care about your soul enough to tell you what you don't want to hear sometimes? Do you give yourself to people who truly love you and care about you in your spiritual journey? So why do you follow certain people? Why do you listen to certain pastors? Why do you uh, listen to certain songs? Be careful with that too, right? And what's being said. 
we, we stumbled across, uh, Amber and I were scrolling around. We, you know, I'm always looking for Christian music and try to keep up with artists and what they're doing, you know, because we got to be careful who we sing and why we sing what we sing here. We need to have some philosophy of, of worship here and the songs that we sing. And we came across an article from a gentleman who left a certain group years ago, uh, had a falling out because he is fully open and affirming, I'll say that, regarding homosexuality. Open and affirming. I, I believe we should be open to loving them, but affirming their lifestyle? We can't do that, right? It's wrong. And so anyways, long story short, this gentleman left a former group, and he um, went to the Dove Awards in a dress with a what was her name, Flamey Grant? With Flamey Grant, going to the Dove Awards. Flamey Grant, uh, drag queen. And so um, it was very interesting that uh, we started looking up the lyrics to the songs of Flamey Grant, and it was outright blasphemous. And that person, I don't know how they identify themselves, wanted an award for that. Be careful um, what you listen to. <laughs> you may... This is a side note today, a little excursus here, but be careful what you let your kids listen to. Oh, it's Christian. Oh, it's Christian. Look up the lyrics. All right, be careful with that. In other words, who do you give yourself to? Who do you give yourself to? What are they proposing? What is the message that they preach and live as the general course of their life? Why do you follow certain people? Do you give yourself to people who are careful with the message of the gospel and living it out in their life, generally speaking, as a pattern? Not in perfection, but as a pattern. Who don't care. Do you follow people who care enough to tell you what you need to hear and not just what you want to hear? Do you give yourself to those who are truly concerned about your souls? There are many who have marketed Christ in order to get more people to follow them. I believe that's the majority of Christian CCM music, by the way. They're trying to conjure people up to follow them, not Christ. Do these people that you follow point you to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, or do they point to themselves? Watch out for those who would desire to have your allegiance to themselves more than to Christ, and watch out for those who would either demand more than what Christ demands or less. So those who are like Judaizers, they're obsessed with the flesh while they ignore the Spirit of God. They avoid at all costs the persecution as well that comes with picking up the cross and carrying it. They're motivated by avoiding persecution, avoiding hardship that comes with saying, no, the the road is narrow and I'm going to stay on it. Persecution that Paul dealt with while preaching a circumcision-free gospel uh, ran the course of his life. And so Paul warned them as he warns us again today, what does he say to do? Avoid this distortion of the gospel and those who lead you astray. They are motivated by what you will do for them. They are not interested in your spiritual well-being. So then we move to verse 14. Verse 14 then goes on to say, But far be it for me to boast except in. So we don't boast except in this. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. So Paul has just described the false teachers bragging about their false accomplishments, proud of their success in winning over the Gentile believers to a false gospel by requiring circumcision for justification. And Paul declares, what? God forbid. God forbid. 
he hits back with this truth, that the only possible ground and object of boasting was the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul developed the theme of boasting more than any other writer in the New Testament. Talks a lot about it. He teaches it well, helping us understand that the gospel teaches us to not boast in anything that we have done, but we ought to boast in everything that Christ has accomplished. In Romans three twenty-one through 27, Paul warns of boasting in our righteousness, especially in relation to God's righteousness through Christ on our behalf. He says in our own works, then boasting is excluded, cannot be done. But here there is a kind of boasting that we ought to have, and you ought to have. We're to boast in the cross of Christ. Sean Coderre taught uh, the book of 2 Corinthians to the teens this Wednesday, um, and it really developed this theme of boasting as well in 2 Corinthians 10.17, into the book, says this, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The only boasting that we're ever to find acceptable must be centered in the work in the cross of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, where redemption is found. It cannot come by baptism, cannot come by circumcision or law observance. Focusing on the cross of Jesus Christ diminishes your pride, builds you up in humility, causes us to be humble in relation to other people, makes us thankful for the Lord's table. By the way, do you deserve the Lord's table? I'm seeing some no's, just so we're clear, no. None of us deserve the Lord's table. We're to come here with, wow, I can't believe he invites me in. How can it be that we get to come and dine with Jesus Christ? It humbles us. The cross of Jesus Christ, it also gives us hope, both in this life and in the life to come. It causes us to care well for those in death, giving them confidence that you're going to go see the one who is life. The cross for the Christian is our whole life, in other words. From beginning to end, it's the cross. We see also in this letter that the cross of Jesus Christ ends all forms of legalism. It eradicates it. I grew up in in some circles that were leaning more towards legalism, and it's frustrating, to say the least, to have that. The gospel frees us from that. It, it recalibrates our motives for everything. It causes us to fight our remaining sin. It gives us grace in dealing with others and helping them battle sin, not in an arrogant, self-righteous way, but helps us to put our arm around people and say, you can do it through Christ. I don't put you down. Keep at it, encouraging others as they're battling sin. The cross helps us identify those who attempt us to stray from its shadow as well. Helps us to spot counterfeits. Isn't that what we see in this letter? Everything that we just talked about. So this is Paul's point. Paul boasts in the very thing that shapes his life, and it didn't come through him. It came from above. It's the very thing that brings us into a right relationship with God. As the cross of Christ brings Paul into a right relationship with God, then it also brings us into a troubled relationship with our flesh. And it ought to. So some of you may be here today going, man, I'm, you know, I get that I need the cross. I get that I need Jesus Christ. But why am I still battling my flesh? It's because you're still in human form here on the earth. 
Helps us, it helps you battle it. It helps you live a life of confession, of constantly running to and clinging to Christ. It helps you to battle this world system that is still embedded in your, your DNA and your code. And what is this world system that he's talking about here? It's the lust of the flesh, it's the lust of the eyes, and it's the pride of life. From the very beginning, are those, are those not the three areas that Satan tempted Eve with? She saw that the tree was good for food. It was pleasant to the eye, desired to make one wise. And he said, and then he lied to her, questioning God. And it's never changed. It's the same thing over and over and over. Satan hasn't really changed his tactics any, and it still works really well. But the cross of Jesus Christ helps you to daily die to yourself, to die to your flesh. Do you remember that Jesus died in your place? So all things that are counter to holiness are subjected now to the cross in the believer. The believer now begins a war against those things in his heart. So what Paul has in mind is that the Christian fights against the desires that are misplaced, desires that would seek to advance one's own agenda at the expense of all others around you. We're to war and fight against sinful misplaced desires that go against the fruit of the Spirit. The cross of Christ changes our whole way of living, our whole way of thinking and feeling. So then in verse 15, the train of thought that continues, this crucifixion with the world, continues on as Paul sharpens his points made in 12 through 14. He teaches us that our outward expression of the work of the Spirit and the cross of Christ are subjected to our identity in Christ as new creations. So then we move into God's direction. We not only put off our former identity, but, excuse me, put off our former identity, we're to put on and live in that new identity that is ours, that we didn't conjure up, but was given to us. Who gives you a new heart? Christ does. The Spirit indwells you. How often we forget that we have the Holy Spirit. He's the one who gives the fruit, remember? Pastor Jeff taught on the fruit of the Spirit. He gives you the fruit of the Spirit. It's his. He gives you the new heart. He awakens you to life. Just as much as that preacher in the Old Testament that preached to the dead bones that started dancing and came to life, the same thing happens through preaching today. The Word of God makes you alive in Christ. We're new creatures who go in a new direction on a new path, and it's a hard one. It's a difficult path dying to yourself. And so what Paul is getting at here is to summarize the letter this way. The life of faith is not to be lived in terms of external laws. Rather, he is going internal here. Who you are in Christ, inwardly. It is to be lived in terms of being. But how quickly we go to doing, if I just do this and do that and do that, instead of just existing in God, in Christ, in your heart, with your affections, giving it to him daily. He goes inward here to see your identity. So everything is done by means of not works of flesh, but in the spirit. And read with me who the spirit is and what he does in 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18. If you want to turn there, that's fine. It would be good to see this. But 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18 says this, because this is all about the object of our faith and the one who is doing this work through the third member of the Trinity, the triune Godhead working for you. Of the Lord is the Spirit, 
and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's the key. Knowing what he produces and who is working for you. And is he lying there or is that a promise? For you that are weary today, battling your flesh, tired, saying, oh, I did it again, I fell again. I, for 30 years I've been battling with this anger or, or objectifying women or, or flirting at work with someone who's not my spouse, which, by the way, stop that if you're doing that, okay? But pray for the Spirit of God to grab your heart and convict you of that and change and walk in the Spirit. The Lord is, a, is the Spirit and he indwells you and he's working on your behalf to battle and to war and to fight through him. So we are being transformed by means of God's Spirit and it is his fruit that we begin to see manifest in our lives by faith alone and by grace alone in Christ alone. In verse 16, Paul issues an encouragement then to the believers with this benediction. So he does give a benediction here, though it is small. It's a benediction of peace and mercy, but to all who do what? So there is doing, but the being precedes doing here. Notice that. Being precedes doing. So this peace and mercy is for who who do what? Who follow this rule. So he doesn't take away personal responsibility, though. He blesses all those who, quote, keep in line then with the truth that he has just brought forth of freedom in Christ or to those who are new creations. Paul wants these believers to experience all the freedom that God has for you. All the freedom of following God, of ordering their life on the basis of new creation ethics, new creation theology, rather than ritual law observance. For those who do this, Paul is sure will know the peace and the mercy of God. And so I, I say this, there are many Christians who walk around very frustrated, anxious, um, defensive, bristly, joyless, and I think the reason is because they're jumping to trying to do everything rather than going back to who they are in Christ. You are a new creation. But you're forgetting that and you're not believing that. And I know you're not believing that because you're not living that and you're frustrated and there's no peace and there's no mercy. Well, there's mercy for you, but you're not, you don't have the peace of God. He's got it right there for you. If you remember your identity... Your new creations. Quit the ritual law observance. Quit believing the lies that you have to do dot, dot, dot in order to become a new creation when you already are. Live in who you are. So peace and mercy is for those who just follow this rule, this rule of freedom in Christ. This rule of freedom that the Spirit of God is, is working fruit in you. For those who, who live this way, Paul is sure will know the peace and the mercy of Christ. So notice with me further that Paul pronounces this benediction's peace and mercy on those who will follow this rule and enjoins the Gentile believer's new creation identity. Don't get mad at me. This is what's written. What does he call them? And this may tick some of you off. Bear with me. And don't get mad at me. This is what's written here. It's Israel of God. We're not replacement theology. 
if you've heard of that. This isn't the church replacing Israel, okay? There is one people of God, one people of faith, one children of Abraham, and we're here today. Through Israel, for the world, the gospel came. That's how it works. It's redemptive history from beginning to end. There is one people of God, and this is a beautiful thing, that Gentiles are grafted in with the church, or the, the church is grafted in with Israel, right? There's a people of faith in the Old Testament. There's a people of faith in the New Testament. It's all about faith, all right? So Paul's ending this letter here. Follow with me. He identifies them as Israel of God. This is in keeping with the original translation work that might have difficulty in our English syntax. I'm not twisting this. This is simply what, what it's saying. And I'll try to explain this. This verse identifies the Israel of God as the church. Long has the church's theologians marked out the church as the Israel of God. The Bible teaches that. John Calvin, John Owen, John Edwards, lots of Johns here. Men have written extensively on this subject, and I don't need to bore you with all the details today, but at the end of the day, the church is the Israel of God. Here again from God's word, we have not only this direct language used, but it supports the very trouble being worked out in this letter. The context supports this. This church is made up of both believing Jew and Gentile together as one, right? There aren't two different ways of salvation. It's always been about faith. This understanding is in keeping with Paul's desire also to avoid factions. And isn't that the very trouble in every epistle that he tries to deal with? Those Jews and those Gentiles, and they're fighting against each other. Get along, you're one people. Right? Supports the whole point. Paul's teaching on the unity of God's people is seen elsewhere in both in Galatians itself. If we go back to 28 to 29 in chapter 3, let's go back to the very crux of this book here in the trouble and what he says. And I'm not making this up. I want you to see this. In the church of Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. At the end of the day, when it comes to your soul, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to faith, there is no Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When it comes to your soul and your new creation identity that they just talked about, you're either saved or you're not. That's the two different people. You either have faith or you don't. That's the two different people. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That's verse 29. Heirs according to promise, children of Abraham. And again, back to Jeremy's point that he made when he taught on this aspect of Abraham. When was Abraham circumcised? Before or after faith? Okay? Think about that. So we see that even in Abraham, we are all his children by promise, by faith. It says in Romans 10:12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. When it comes to Christ, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. And that's the point. It's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father in all, through all, to all. There are either people of faith or not of faith. Colossians 3:11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all. That's the point. Christ is all and in all. So Paul invokes here God's peace 
on all who would live by the Spirit, follow this rule, and enjoins the Gentiles into the Israel of God. And the book of Romans supports that too. We're grafted in as one people by faith. If you have more questions on that, feel free to come talk to me later. We could spend hours on that. But don't need to today. The point is Christ is all. Christ is everything. So in verse 17, Paul does use his weight as an apostle, as I mentioned at the beginning today, and warns against further trouble as a means to call the Galatians to seriously reflect on what he has said. Have you ever done that as a parent with your children? You, right? Speak softly and carry a big stick, right? Here's what he's doing. I'm gonna, uh, he brings his fatherly weight to them, his gravitas. He bears his weight. They need to seriously consider the truth he has penned. And God places serious weight on you as the hearer today, too, with what has been taught. You are the receiver to the word of God and the same weight that is being issued to the Galatians should be transferred to you as well. Paul was commissioned by God to write this timeless truth. He was troubled greatly for holding fast to this truth. That should also carry some weight. He takes it personally. Many times you might think that pastors don't take things personally, but we're human and we do. We shouldn't, but we do. We take things personally. Paul was a person and had a heart. He took some things personally here. He was troubled. You know, it seems as if people forget that Paul was a human being, that he had feelings, that he wasn't stoic all the time. He cared and he felt. So he calls here for the activity that's troubling him to cease. Stop troubling me, he says. He's already been beaten. He's already been scarred. He's already been left for dead, shipwrecked, stoned. So he says, let no one continue causing me trouble. He bore the physical marks of bearing this message that he taught. He lived it. Associating with Christ caused him much pain. So in verse 18, and with much fatherly affection and love for the church, Paul closes his letter here with his official benediction, and he adds the word brothers. He wants them to know we're one in Christ He is a father of sorts to them. They are family. This was showing his affection for them here. He wanted to warn them, but give his affection to them too. He spoke severely. He spoke harshly. He spoke with great weight. But then he adds his affection to them. Fathers, you should be this way when you need to be too in your homes. Bear your weight as heads of your homes. Be severe when you need to be. Be very affectionate when you need to be. Be well-rounded in your leadership. But here, Paul hopes that they will take to his heart, take heart to his hope for them, to be sound in the gospel of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. All that Paul said and did was centered on the person of Jesus Christ, who was over all. He centered on the person, the word, the work of Christ, And may we live our lives accordingly. And may God help us. Let's pray. So Father, we give you thanks today for these, this timeless truth. I pray, Father, that it would be just as fresh to us today as it was when it was first read to them thousands of years ago. I pray, Father, that our hearts will resonate with this truth. Those, Father, who are struggling 
in, in trying to do everything instead of just living in their being that they are as new creations, I pray that you would help them to reflect hard on where their hope is set. Turn them once again back to Christ if they have strayed from faith in him. If they're weak in faith, Father, we pray that you would build them up in faith and grow it today. That they would believe this promise, this truth, that, that you that started that good work in them will continue it. That the Holy Spirit will do his work. I pray, Father, that you would give us as leadership in this church faith to believe that. To understand that it may at times be slow growth. But if there is growth, may we rejoice and encourage. So we thank you for this church, Father, that is showing marks of growth and increasing in faith and love and, and, and fruit of the Spirit. We thank you that it's seen and witnessed here, that there's much love, there's joy, there's peace, and I pray that we would want more of that and work for more of that through living in and through the Holy Spirit. May Jesus Christ continue to be glorified and to be central. May the cross continue to shape and fashion and form this church to be what you want it to be. Would we not stray from the message of the cross? Would it be central to all that we say and do in our being here with one another? And we thank you, Father, for this truth. May we carry it with us. Would it not only shape our church, but would it shape our homes? Would the cross shape our, mar- our marriages, our child-rearing? May it be central to all that we are, to all that we feel. May it capture our affections, and we give this time to you. We give this message to you. And may we carry it with us in Jesus' name. Amen.